Selenite, my, my, my microphone working now? Good, yes? You can hear me, thank you back there. In the 1950s, Brother Andrew of Holland was sent by the Holy Spirit to deliver the word. Uh, his uh, task by the, by the Lord was to bring to those behind the Iron Curtain the word as the, uh, the church and the faith was being persecuted under communism. And driving his little VW bug uh, through uh, old Yugoslavia on his way to Bulgaria, he had calculated after going through the checkpoint entering Yugoslavia that he had four days uh, before the secret police would know uh, that he was there. Uh, and, and so he needed to get through uh, in those four days. But the four days were going so well and the message was getting out uh, that he decided uh, to stay a, a fifth day. And sure enough, on that fifth day, the secret police, uh, they found him, they brought him, brought him in for questioning, uh, and uh, he was nearly imprisoned, but they let him go, and they told him that he needed to leave immediately. He had 24 hours to go back to Austria, uh, back to the West, and not to come back. He was going to Bulgaria, and he was only 50 miles at this point uh, to go, and he, he, he begged, I, I'm going to Bulgaria, please let me go to Bulgaria. Uh, but the secret police refused, and they said, you will go back to Austria, and that's our final word. And so, indeed, uh, Brother Andrew had to drive uh, back through U Yugoslavia, and then he had a very uh, long and discouraging trip as he went down the east coast of, of Italy, uh, and not very good roads, uh, down to the southern Italy, and then he uh, brought his car into a boat, and he went to Greece, and then he had to drive through Greece, uh, up through the Macedonian mountains, uh, and it was a terribly discouraging time as uh, he had a slip disc and, uh, and he was in increasing back pain, uh, so much so that he was uh, beginning to be hunched over and he could, uh, whenever he was standing, he, he could barely walk. He was filled with so much pain. But worse than that, he was also feeling terribly depressed. His, he was filled with doubt, uh, really for one of the first times in, in, in his ministry. And he began to realize how close he was to being uh, imprisoned. And then he thought to himself, what if, what if I get thrown into prison in, in Bulgaria? Uh, what if uh, my wife, Corey, uh, who is also just taking great risks with him, what if I never see her again? And, and she was carrying uh, their very first child. Was sharing the message worth all the risk? Of course, sharing the message is often very hard. It's it's risky to share the message of the good news of the mystery of Jesus Christ. It's risky because some are closed and some are indeed hostile. But then again, there's also open hearts with uh, an open door. And if they hear the message, their lives will be wonderfully transformed through the mystery of Christ and as the, his love touches them deeply. So our text here in Colossians chapter 4, and I invite you to open your Bibles and keep it open as we uh, look a little bit more carefully at Colossians chapter 4 beginning in verse 2, our text lays out a framework for sharing the message even in the midst of hostility. Like today, the, the, the spiritual climate of Paul's day was hardly friendly to the preaching of the word. The first century Greco-Roman world 
uh, was at least as religiously pluralistic as our day. And it was risky then to share the message because of both the, of the religious pluralism, as well as a deep relativism, as well as the political implications that, that many were interpreting the, the preaching of the word. And Paul knew firsthand how uh, risky it was as he was writing these very words in Colossians from prison. Now, in their, uh, it's in this context that Paul is explaining a framework for sharing the message. And actually, it's, it's derived from Daniel chapter 2, which is one of the reasons why we, we had it read earlier on in the surface. Uh, in their commentary, Greg Beale and D.A. Carson, one of my favorite commentaries is the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. They look at and show all the parallels that exist between Colossians chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 2. Now, when I read it, I don't see the parallels until you get into the original language, as, as Beale and Carson show. And they demonstrate how there are a number of words that occur in both, in both uh, texts that are unusual, like the word word mystery and the word wisdom. And then there's this uh, word about buying time or delaying time. Uh, Paul uses it here in Colossians. He also uses it in, in the book of Ephesians. And it occurs nowhere else in anywhere in Hellenistic Greek literature other than in one place. It actually occurs in Daniel chapter 2 in the words of Nebuchadnezzar. And when you see that kind of connection, it's not by mistake. It means that Paul is likely looking at Daniel chapter 2, and he's actually exegeting in Colossians what's going on in, 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 uh, in the Old Testament. Both of the passages deal with the issue of prayer. You can see how prayer comes up, and both of the texts describe a hostility, as well as within that hostility, an opportunity to share the mystery of Christ. So I'm presenting a, a framework. There, there is a framework that Daniel followed and Paul followed. And Paul is instructing the Colossians in how to follow it and sharing the message within hostility. And so now also with us today. The way of sharing the message of Jesus follows what we might call a framework of open doors. A framework of open doors. See, a, a closed door is when the ears won't hear the message of Christ, but an open door in this text represents the willingness to hear the message and to consider it with a, a kind of friendliness. And this framework of, of open doors has different components. And I, I guess for a simple visual, I'd like to present the use of a door as a way of visualizing what's going on in this passage. And so I would, uh, th there are knocks with doors, there are locks, there are hinges, and there are knobs. So I'd like to kind of go through each one of those in, as we look through this text. Well, first of all, there's the knock. There's a knock, of course, that will often come with the door. And I think this represents our own willingness to share the message. Of course, the Apostle Paul had a very deep desire to tell others about Christ. He tells the Romans in, in chapter 1, I'm eager to preach the gospel. He tells the, the Colossians, woe to me if I do not preach. But it's not also just Paul who had this commissioning to share the message. Not just him at all. In fact, Christianity is a sharing faith. Why? Because Jesus himself was sent and he sends. He 
He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. You see, there's nothing, there, there's no such thing as a quiet Christian. We're commissioned by Christ to follow his lead. He was sent and he was not quiet. And so you are sent and you are not to be quiet. He says, go and make disciples in every nation. It's a commissioning from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the sharing of the message of, of Christ is to flow out of our gratitude of this great salvation that has come upon us out of joy, but it's also, it flows out of obedience to the Lord and out of his lordship. And of course, we've, as we've been studying and going through the, the letter to the Colossians, this theme of Christ's lordship is really part of the central theme that governs the entire letter as, as it reoccurs over and over again. In the second half of Colossians in chapters three and four, it's Paul applying the lordship of Christ over the Christian life. So in chapter 3, verse 5, he, he calls us to put to death sin. And then in, in verse 12, he, he says, put on Christ, put on his virtues. And so this, this putting off of sin and this putting on of Christ is part of bringing ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then like we talked about last week, there is the lordship over our family life and over our work. By the way, did you do the homework that I, I, I asked you to do last week? The homework about praying about attention that might be in a relationship, especially around a, a power struggle? And did you pray about that? And did you, uh, did you spend some time looking at yourself, asking, is there any way that I need to change? And did you pray and ask the Lord to show you at least one way that you might change in your behavior and your actions towards that person who might be above you or below you? If you did and something happened, I would love to know. Well, he, we bring our family life and our work life under the lordship of Christ. But then finally, here in this passage, uh, it, this is really about the, the lordship of Christ over our life mission. You see, a central reason why we are still here and have not been ushered into the presence of God is because there's still a mission to accomplish and the mission is to bring the good news to those who have not yet given their life to him. Well, Christians have a lot of uh, struggle sometimes in, in sharing the message and objections. And I think one of the common objections that Christians have in, in their hesitation in sharing the message is that we're told that we're being narrow-minded. Religious pluralists say all religions are equally true. And it's narrow-minded to think that your religion is true and someone else's is not. But let me ask you a couple questions. If it's wrong to critique other religions, then how can the religious pluralist critique a Christian desire to share the gospel? That's a double standard. We can't critique other religions, but then the religious pluralist can critique us for wanting to bring the gospel? Or the religious pluralist says, there is no way of knowing absolute truth. That's why all the religions are basically the same, and ultimately. There's no way of knowing absolute truth. But then does not the religious pluralist claim an absolute when they say that there's no way to know? That's not logical. And so we're being told 
very powerful cultural influences are telling us to not do something, but it's based on something that's not logical. And it's a double standard. And if you just scratch the surface, you begin to see that it doesn't make sense. Well, there's another reason, I think, maybe even a more prevalent reason why Christians hesitate to sharing the message. And it's just plain old un an unwillingness to make it a priority within yourself. I was honestly confronted by that very uh, problem uh, in myself as I was uh, watching the New England Patriots play the New York Jets in a football game on September 23rd, 2001. You see, the game started at 4 o'clock, and the prayer meeting was just down the street from where, where Tracy and I were living. Uh, and the prayer meeting was at 6. The game wasn't over, and it was still a close, close game. And it was a prayer meeting about uh, the health care ministry uh, that, I've, uh, that I've been a part, but I wasn't a part of then. I didn't really feel like praying, and I was in the middle of the game, and as Tracy asked me to go, I said, why don't you go? I'm going to stay here. Now, I know I've been telling lots of early marriage stories, but here's another one. Uh, Tracy and I had only been married for three weeks. And as, as, I, as I was sitting in our little apartment looking at this 24-inch color TV watching this game, uh, my, my dear wife stood in front of the TV, and we can't remember if she had her hands on her hips, but... Uh, and it's interesting is I had been a Christian for a very long time and Tracy had just been baptized that year. And she said, Michael, standing in front of the TV as I'm trying to see the play, Michael, does a spiritual leader prioritize football over ministry for Jesus? Oh. Oh. Okay, let's go. <laughs> she was right. And that moment, that moment in my life actually was a true watershed. And it's changed the rest of, uh, the, rest of the course of my life. Because I went on to, with Tracy to that, that prayer meeting, and it was from then on that I actually began to prioritize ministry to those uh, in medicine and, and in the health sciences. And so much good in my life has come out of the prioritizing of Jesus in ministry uh, rather than spending time, well, there's not anything wrong with watching the football game, of course, but it doesn't come first. There are things that are more important. And of course, it's interesting, the, uh, the Patriots lost that game 10 to three, so I didn't really uh, miss out on much. And it, as it turned out, it turned out to be a watershed football game for the New England Patriots. After I had turned off the TV, there was an unfortunate injury, which then led to a rookie quarterback coming into the game and starting to play, and he didn't stop. And of course, the Patriots ended up winning their very first Super Bowl that year, and Tom Brady led them to five more. Now, I'm not saying that my good decision that day led to the Patriots. <laughs> but I do wonder about the coincidence. <laughs> well, a second component of the Open Doors framework goes
goes from the knock, which is having this willingness to prioritize the sharing of the message. Uh, the second part of the framework is this component of the lock. It's the lock and the key, which I think re is, represents the need for prayerfulness, which creates openness to the message. Look at in Colossians verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door. Now, it's, it's God alone who unlocks the door, but it's prayer that moves him. Constant, serious prayer moves God's heart to take what is closed and that no man can open and to open it. Daniel knew this, prayer that prayer was the key to unlock Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And back in Daniel chapter 2, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Of course, to know another person's dream was humanly impossible. But as he says to Nebuchadnezzar later, God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. So it's important to pay attention that it was in response to this, this group of men who had gathered and, to, who, and they fervently prayed in light of all the hostility that was going on that God moved and he did something quite remarkable. And I think it's, again, it's, it, it's reminding us and, and teaching us a lesson as Paul now brings us to pay attention in verse 2. He says, and the, and the verb that he uses is plural, I think is important, so we would translate it, all of you continue steadfastly in prayer. All of you. See, every church needs what we might call a growing prayer core. A prayer core is like nuclear fusion generator that brings spiritual energy and vision and discernment. And I think what we can learn from Scripture, it's very clear that for ministry to expand, it needs behind it the expansion of many who are praying for open doors. And the prayer of the collective needs to move from tens to, to hundreds and to beyond. Christ alone has the power to open what no man can open. But what moves God's heart is us praying intensely. No prayer, no effectiveness. A little prayer, a little, effective, a little effectiveness. Lots of prayer, of sticking with it and not letting go, then we can trust that God will respond with powerful and great effectiveness and the opening of doors that no one could open. Now, I'm, I'm not putting my hands on my hips and I'm not standing in front of a TV, well, I guess if, unless you're watching it uh, on, <laughs> online. But don't you want that? Don't you want to see the power of God displayed in and through us to do things that have not been done in generations? I want that. Don't you? If you say, yes, yes, I do want that, then, then you have to respond. We have to meet, and we have to gather, and we have to pray, and we have to pray. We have to pray against these doors 
and we can entrust that God, the God of heaven, will hear our prayers and do what is not possible with us. Well, uh, there's the lock, and the key to the lock is prayer. A third component of the open door framework are the, the hinges, the, the hinges of a door. And I think this represents the graciousness that precedes the giving of the message. Hinges allow a door to swing smoothly. And of course, if the hinges are stuck or they're squeaky, hinges need lubricant. And when you lubricate them, they, they work. And I think this is exactly what Paul is saying in verses 5 and 6, if you look at it with me. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now the main phrase here in verse 5, uh, verses 5 and 6 is walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What is this wisdom? Well, part of the, the dimension or component or the nature of wisdom is that it is relational and it's invitational. In fact, in, in Proverbs, the personification of wisdom as it speaks in Proverbs 9.5, Proverbs says to those who lack wisdom, he says, come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine, he's, he's, he's creating a relationship and it's deeply invitational. And I think that's one of the keys to understanding what happened in Daniel chapter 2 because Nebuchadnezzar had given this command to the captain of the guard, Arioch, to go slaughter all of the wise men. And as Daniel learns about what's, about what's happening or what is about to happen, he goes to Arioch, it says in discretion and imprudence, and he asks him a question. Do you have to do this so urgently? And then, they, and then it says Arioch told him what was going on. Now for that whole conversation to happen, it requires a preceding relationship. Daniel and Arioch must have already known each other. Arioch must have somehow trusted Daniel and trusted who he was. Because Arioch defied the king's orders by delaying. And he did it because of what Daniel had said. So you can see how wisdom can operate in friendship. Wisdom operates in friendship, and it's that friendship and relationship that begins to swing doors open that were once stuck. Paul describes three ways that wisdom operates in relationships. If you look uh, in verses 4 and 5, essentially, there's a timeliness, there's a graciousness in speech, and then there, is, there, there are, are tail, tailored responses. Now, in verse 5, it's, it's a timely response. Nebuchadnezzar used this, uh, this concept of, of redeeming the time in a negative sense to say you're, you're trying to delay, delay the inevitable. But Paul is reversing the meaning of it, and he's reversing it because he knows that the God of heaven, who is the God and sovereign over time, that he's a part of the equation. And so when God is part of the, time, the equation of time, this buying of time is no longer a delay. It's actually, it becomes impeccable timing. Imagine a bunch of doors in front of you. Uh, doors that are opening and then doors that are closing. And you know, how do you get the word through any of these doors as they open and then maybe they quickly shut? Maybe they open for that one moment. And if you're there at the right time and you know what to do, that's this impeccable timing that's not possible with us, but God, when he's involved, he can provide that impeccable time. And the message of Christ, usually and in order to be effective, requires a timeliness. There's also a graciousness. A great, grace, gracious word, speech, seasoned with salt. So when we 
bring the message. Our words have to be sensitive to the, to the person and to the situation. We can't be using, obviously, harsh or judgmental language. We have to remember that a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. Graciousness avoids poisonous topics. Certainly politics is one of those poisonous topics. And if you go into the topic of politics, then it's going to get potentially hazardous to being able to talk about more important issues like issues of faith. And when we're talking to someone and sharing the message, this graciousness is not trying to win an argument because you can't argue anyone into the throne room of God. No, you can win an argument logically, but then you can lose the person. So that's not what Paul has in mind. And I think also graciousness is deeply aware of power dynamics that might exist in a professional setting. And you have to be aware of those sorts of power dynamics, especially if you're in, in a, as a caregiver. And it requires wisdom and prayer and thought so that you're not being coercive and taking advantage of the position you're in, but you're still being open and willing for a door to open. And I know many of caregiving professionals who have found ways without being coercive to be able to share the word. Well, timely and gracious, and the third hinge of the door, if you will, is tailored responses, verse 6. So you may know how you ought to answer each person. To know how to answer, it takes study and training. You have to ask the hard questions yourself, and you have to spend the time to work through, okay, what is a good answer to this question? And it might even help you to write down as succinctly and as, with as much brevity as possible a simple way of responding to this and holding it in yourself so that when that question might come up, you've been prepared and you're ready. Well, I had a university colleague. Uh, we did research together, and our offices were next door to one another. She wasn't religious, but she knew that I was a Christian. And I saw her one morning, and uh, she looked distressed to me. And I said, are you okay? And she said, not really. And I said, well, do you want to talk about it? I, I have time. And she did. It turned out, as she uh, began to tell her story, she and her partner, who were two mothers, they were distressed about the emotional issues that their child was experiencing. And they didn't know what to do. Now, a lot was going through my mind as I'm hearing this, and how do I respond in a way that's both uh, gracious and, and faithful? And I believe the Holy Spirit just kind of showed me what to say. I, I just said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's really hard. I know exactly what it means to, to be a parent and how hard it really is to be dealing with these sorts of things. And, and then I said, I'm going to pray for you. And then the, uh, the, the thought just came to me. In fact, I'll pray for you right now if, if you want me to. She said, really? How will we do that? I said, well, let's just go into the office and, and, and we can do it. And so we sat down, and I sincerely began just to pray, to pray over her and um, her spouse and their child. And then something uh, remarkable happened as we finished. She said, Michael, I, my heart feels a little lighter. Thank you. And then a few days later, she came back and she told me, she said, the situation has completely changed, and it's gotten so much better. That's amazing. And then to my shock, a few days later, her boss and my boss came to me and she said, Michael, I have something I'd like you to pray about. 
my colleague was, was telling others what was going on. And, you know, I can't take any credit. There's no way. In fact, in my work, as I was doing that research, I came to a place of just utter realization of a need for God. And I did, it became to the point where I was going to work, and the first thing that I was doing, I would go early, and I would spend time reading scripture, and I would pray. And I would pray into the day that the Lord would be with me, he would help me with the things that I'm doing, empower, uh, and that I would be his. It was just after finishing one of those times with the Lord that I ran into her. And it was clear to me that it, the timeliness and the graciousness and the, the proper response that was in me, it was God flowing through me, but I was a willing vessel and I was working to make my work all of his. Well, there's a fourth component of this open doors framework, and let's call it the knobs. It's the doorknobs. And this involves both the faith and the risk of presenting the message. Verse 3 and 4 says, To declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Of course, sharing the word should never be forced. It's not supposed to be coerced or manipulated. and It's not about proselytizing. It's the Lord who opens the door and moves the person by unlocking. But it's the person who turns the doorknob and opens the door for you. You can't force your way in. And it's usually something that happens in that person's life. There's the old answers aren't quite satisfying anymore. And they begin to search. They begin on a search looking for something that makes more sense. Now, sometimes it's an illness. It can be a lost job. It can be transitions like getting married or moving to a new city. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it was a troubling dream. A troubling dream. He, he wouldn't tell the wise men because he already knew that there was something wrong with their worldview that he was living under. And he knew that it wasn't valid, so he wasn't willing to share the dream. And though it was in a fit of rage, uh, he was indeed opening the door for something else to come in. And what was it that was troubling him? It was this night vision that he didn't know what, meant, what it meant. And through the revelation of God, uh, God touched Daniel, who was able to show him this dream, and that Nebuchadnezzar was given a glimpse of the future, and it was actually the future of the coming of the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the Jewish king and the Jewish God, Christ the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that this interpretation was indeed exactly true, because there was no way of Daniel being able to interpret it having not been told what the dream was. It's not always so dramatic, of course. Uh, but those who open their hearts to the word, this mystery of Christ, it meets people in various ways in their need. It meets them exactly where they need to be met. If they're willing to take a small step of faith and turn the knob and, and open the door so that they might hear the message, the message comes along and, and can do powerful, transforming things. It's not our calling to knock down the door, but we are called to be willing to follow this framework of open doors. To knock, that's the willingness. Willingness wherever you are, in your neighborhood or at work or with your family. Realizing that there is a lock, but we've been given the key. And the key is us praying fervently together. And there are those stuck hinges which need lubrication, and the lubrication comes from that graciousness that precedes the message as we bring it into ourselves. But then finally, there's this knob, which is the faith of the one opening the door 
But then there's also faith for the one meeting the person opening the door. It takes faith. It takes risk. Both people taking risk in the message being delivered. Daniel took a risk. He actually took the risk by saying that uh, making the appointment with Nebuchadnezzar before he even knew what the dream was. That's faith. Paul took all kinds of risks for the gospel, and he paid for it dearly with multiple imprisonments. There's no guarantee that taking a risk means that it will all be wonderful peach and roses. Of course, in, uh, when he was in Philippi, one of his imprisonments, Paul and Silas were there at midnight, and they were singing and praying to God, and then God sent an earthquake, and the earthquake flew open all the shut jail doors. But that's not the only thing that was made open. It was also the jailer whose heart opened up to God that very night, and he and all of his family. Well, Brother Andrew, writing in his book, The God Smuggler, he was thrown and closed doors out of Yugoslavia, and all the doors seemed to be closing in around him. He had that slipped disc, and he was in excruciating pain. Uh, depression was really taking over him as he worried about going into Bulgaria with a carload of Bulgarian Bibles and being thrown into prison. And as he made this long trek, he arrived to the ancient ruins of Philippi. And he stopped, and with his back crunched over in pain, he got out and, and he looked. And he said there was no one there, and it was completely silent. And as he looked over these ancient ruins, he heard a voice. He heard a voice saying, Christian, where is your faith? And then, Brother Andrew says, he, as he heard the voice, he gave himself back over to the Lord and the mission that, had been, that he had been called to. He says a miracle happened. Immediately, this depression, like chains, just fell off. And to his shock, he all of a sudden, as he was walking back to his car, realized he was, realized he was walking erect and that he had no more back pain. He went on to Bulgaria and he arrived to the city of Sofia. There in Sofia, he was able to find the one Christian contact, an old man named Petrov, to, to be able to deliver the Bibles that he had. It's interesting that Andrew found this contact. He was going to Bulgaria without knowing a single soul in Bulgaria. But it was on that fifth day that he waited in Yugoslavia that he received the contact for Petrov, and he memorized his address. Talk about impeccable timing. And as Andrew came and met Petrov, uh, he and Petrov's wife, he, he, he learned that their Bibles were non-existent in Bulgaria. And that Petrov told him about dozens and dozens and dozens of underground, unregistered churches, which not one church even had one Bible. And there, Andrew was able to present uh, to Petrov and to his wife this Bulgarian Bible and shaking and holding the Bible as, as he received it. Tears began to flow down Petrov's eyes. And the two men formed this partnership. Of course, Andrew had a bunch of Bibles in his, uh, in his car. But over the years, he says that 
thousands and thousands of Bibles came through this single relationship as he was able to bring them across the Iron Curtain and Petrov was able to deliver them to many, many churches. See, that day, God opened what no man can shut. And it was with great courage and with risk and with faith that those two men were used by God to do an incredible thing for the country of Bulgaria. Well, I wonder, there are doors right now in front of each of you, are there not? Doors that are open, doors that are closed. Will you knock? Will you pray? Will you meet this door with a response of gracious love? Will you have that risky, persistent faith to share the message like Andrew and his wife Corey did? Like Petroff? Like Daniel? Like Paul? May God fill you with a burning desire to understand why we're here, to share the mission, the message of Jesus Christ, the mystery that will solve all the riddles if hearts will open up in faith. Lord God, give us faith. Empower us. Empower this church. Each one here, fill them with hope. And Lord, do things that only you can do. Lord Jesus, King of, King of kings and Lord of lords, you who hold the keys, we pray, even as Isaiah prayed in Isaiah 22, 22, that you would open doors that no one can shut. And Lord, we pray that you would close doors that no man can open and do it for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.